Hello and welcome to the Living in Poetry podcast, where we bring you the best discussions from over the two days at Living in Poetry Festival, aka Lipfest, Gwen's first spoken word festival brought to you by Wellversed Inc., Writers and Scribes, Young People Insight and Poets Anonymous. This series will come in three parts and on this first episode, you'll hear from spoken word artists Ryan Hart and Francesca Beard, poetry producer Tom McAndrew and poetry educator and host Jacob Sam LaRose who will discuss the poetry industry and tips on how to navigate it. Have your pen and pad ready. Alright, good afternoon everyone. We are here at LipFest 2018. This is our Industry Insight panel. Um, hello to you if you are listening to this at some point in the far future as a recorded uh, piece of content. Hello to you here in the audience right here. Make some noise audience people right now please. Oh my goodness, this is a full, full audience right here. The seats are overflowing. Um, we have a fantastic uh, hour, hour and a half or so of conversation that we're about to have. Like I said, this is the Industry Insight Panel. I have, uh, now I, I described you guys as three esteemed creative professionals. Um, and there was, there was some kind of uh, joking laughter in response to this. But I, I'm going to stand by this phrase. We have three esteemed, esteemed creative professionals sitting next to me. We have Tom McC- and I'm going to say the names and I'm going to ask you to, uh, to make some noise and make some applause. Um, this is the first bit of work that I'm, I'm going to ask you in the audience to do, but you will be working throughout this whole event. So don't get too comfortable. Uh, so please make some noise for Tom McAndrew. <laughs> Mr. Lionheart and Francesca Beard. We're going to get to know each of them intimately um, in in just a moment. And um, we're going to be having conversation as a panel, but we're also going to be opening conversation out to the floor. So uh, if you have questions, please do start to rack them up because we will have an opportunity to ask them. Again, if you are sitting at home or if you're in a car listening to this, uh, it's a shame you weren't here because you don't get to ask those questions. But hopefully we will answer them for you in some way, shape or form. The aim of this panel is to uh, provide you with some sense of what it means to be um, a working professional in our industries. And we, we have a number of different industries represented here by this panel. So I'm going to be kind of quite keen to get into some of that. We're going to be talking about industry advice around writing and performance, tips for emerging poets and spoken word artists, information on progression routes, how to become a professional, what that means, what does it mean to be a professional poet, so on and so forth, and what is the uh, the earning potential, which is a question on so many people's lips. It's fascinating. I do a lot of work going into schools, and it's always really interesting when you get that one kid who's like, uh, sir, how much money do you make? You're a poet, right? How much money do you make? Yeah, okay, cool. We'll have that conversation after later. Um, words, people, words, yes. So, um, like I said, we're going to get to know people in a bit more detail, and I'm gonna start. I have everyone's bios, voluminous bios, sat right here in front of me, but I'm, I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm not gonna read this. I'm not gonna read this stuff out, because I'm much more interested in how you guys define your work, mm. what you see your work as being right now, um, how, you, um, how your drivers, like what it is that drives you in the work that you're currently doing, and how those drivers have changed over time. Right, so um, I'm gonna start with Francesca because you're sitting to my right, and I think I've known you the longest out of anyone on this panel. So we'll start there, and then we'll work up the panel. Um, so Francesca, what is your work currently at the moment? How would you define your work, and, and 
Yeah, what are the drivers behind it? How those drivers changed? Mm. So I would define myself as a spoken word artist. Uh, I am also a performer, mm. a writer, and a spoken word educator. I also work in participatory theatre. So I probably have to write a new CV for every <laughs> single job that I pitch for because um, and, and I've been working for quite a long time in the sector uh, and by sector I'd probably say uh, live literature right. and participatory theatre as well so I've probably got enough experience um, to put together CVs for um, for all of those different things but I definitely have to redo you know do bespoke CVs for everything. It's fascinating the range of different roles that we hold, the range of different hats that we wear, the range of different kind of buckets that we fit into. Um, even when you started to uh, refine that, it was like, so yeah, I do this work. Basically, it's in the live literature sector and participatory theatre. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is that we do, we find ourselves spread. But all of these, I mean, do you, how, how has it been for you maintaining these various different roles? Do, do, do you feel as if you've been pulled in different directions at times or do they all feed each other? I, I think that um, I, I wish that I could say that I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and I followed that ambition with a kind of arrow-like determination but in actual fact my how I became who I am and professionally was very much due to luck to a certain extent uh, and, and and I say that um, and I, I want to mention luck here although it seems kind of counter um, productive to go well, well you have to be lucky I, I'm, I'm not saying that I think you make your own luck but I also want to say that actually it, uh, even people who say yes this is what I wanted to do and this is how I got there and this is what I did I think, to be really honest, you have to say that chance and fate and luck play a part in it. So I probably um, was in certain places at certain times and went through that went into that direction because of the money, quite honestly, because of where the funding was coming from and because of who I wanted to work with and who wanted to work with me. Does that make sense? Completely, completely. And I love that idea of um, luck being a sense of readiness as well. So being open to the things that might happen that you may not have expected or may not be able to legislate for, but also being in a position where you're actually ready to take that on. That's a really great definition of it, and I think that's a really, probably, much more useful thing. <laughs> yeah, so if we just change the word luck for readiness and openness... <laughs> but it's a combination. It's a combination of the two. It's, it's that kind of acknowledgement of the fact that there are certain things beyond your control um, that will just happen for you, right? Or may just happen for you. But it's also that kind of sense of how ready you are to make advantage of those opportunities as they arrive. Yeah, right? yeah. And I, and I, I think, that, and some people might be different, but I, my approach has been very much like water to follow the path of least resistance as well. So I, when I first started, I think I, I had, if I did have any idea, I wanted to be a poet, a page poet, because I didn't know that spoken word really existed. And then I sent my stuff off to magazines and it just didn't get published and no one wanted to know. And I found that really hard and, and kind of, I thought, my soul's going to be destroyed because... And then I found spoken word. 
And actually, the thing for spoken, with Spoken Word for me was that there weren't so many gatekeepers, and actually the community was much more welcoming and supportive, and you could kind of make your luck easier, in a way. You could make your own path. You could make your own yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. There was less resistance. Sure. I'm going to shut up now and let someone else Yeah, let's, let's hear. There are some things okay. that I really want to come back to in that, but yeah, let's hear from, um, from our other two panelists. Let's go to Rail next. Let's just work on down the line. Um, cool. So people might not know that's my government name. <laughs> <laughs> um, they do now. Um, but yeah, um, Lionheart. I would probably describe myself now as a spoke word artist slash poet slash writer slash public speaker. Wouldn't before because I didn't think I could become those things. Um, in the beginning, it was more about how could I entertain the audience? How could I get the most kind of following? How could I impact people with what I could do? I was extremely competitive, mainly because I was extremely insecure. And I wanted to kind of like get that kind of strength within myself whenever I stepped on stage. Because when I left, I was not that person. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely describe myself as a spoken word artist who is an entrepreneur for how I think cognitively. Right. Um, in terms of the work I do now, it started off very entertainment, very like I want to be down a commercial field, like book me, put me on TV. I want to be that loud. And then I kind of learned myself that I wasn't the audience's poet. I was my own poet. And through having like powerful mentors and people that really cared about my trajectory, it allowed me to kind of assimilate the the clarity that I needed within myself, which wasn't there before because I was looking at everyone else's lens to find myself. But then again, like poetry became the reconfigured lens to find myself through my own eyes. And um, now I'm writing about emotional intelligence, um, selective mutism, social anxiety, and a coin, which I phrase is called um, emotional, um, all my days and then forgot the name, um, emotional inhabitancy, which is how emotions can find themselves within the built environment and how that affects us in mental health. Wow. And that draws a lot on your relationship with architecture? Yeah, um, I studied architecture in university, but I was writing poetry, really not when I should have been in class. <laughs> yeah, um, mum knows now. Um, so yeah, yeah that, was, <laughs> that was happening. And it was really interesting how, yeah, I was studying something that I didn't realize how much would be of use to me later on in life, because I just completely ran away from it. Isn't it fascinating the way that that kind of happens for us, the way that we sometimes end up going back to those things that we have taken for granted in our earlier instruction yeah. or in our earlier studies or, you know, they were just kind of there and we didn't really pay so much attention to them, mm -hmm. but they come back in some way. They claim me. Right. <laughs> and fascinating, you know, architecture, yes, we can say that is a creative field, although that is um, kind of the more commercial end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, that kind of building and, and kind of making of the environment. But also one of the things that fascinates me about the work that you're doing at the moment is how you've managed to move into that space as a poet. Yeah, and that, how you've managed to marry those practices and those those kind of elements and ways of thinking. So I think coming off what you just said, um, Francesca, was it was very, with all respect to the climate of poetry when I first started, there were cliques, there were like gatekeepers, there was a lot of that. And if you didn't fit in through my perspective to those gatekeeping standards or criteria, you were left the other. And as someone who felt like the other, I had to almost understand my environment so well that I could exist within it, even without those gatekeepers that weren't allowing me to be permitted in their scenes. And um, you know that phrase about, oh, you have to add so much value to yourself when no one can like, like resist you? I was that kind of form of resistance. I was the resistance against everything else that existed. Right, right. And so I've had to understand my environment culturally and where my art fits within it. Like there's the whole thing like with architecture about the vernacular fitting into the environment and molding yourself to that. I had to understand what it was, mm to insert myself in it so that my environment came for me rather than me for it. 
absolutely fantastic. Again, there's something in that that we're going to come back to that I think resonates um, very beautifully with some of what Francesca was saying, particularly yeah. that notion of building your own path mm -hmm. and uh, figuring out how mm -hmm. to deal with and navigate around rejection yep. and uh, the gatekeeping that happens necessarily, I think, mm. in, in creative kind of industries, right? Um, that's but, an interesting one. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah, an interesting yeah, right. one. Let me there just... you go, there you go. <laughs> but before we get there, um, Tom, Mr. McAndrew, do you write? No. <laughs> <laughs> one of the beautiful things about having you on the panel is, um, you know, in t particularly in terms of the performance of poetry, there's this kind of identification with the people who are on the stage, who are behind those microphones, who are vis visible and seen. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done around understanding the various different pathways that there are for people to work within poetry and spoken word and the performance of poetry um, and the people who are doing that work. So Miss, on that note, Mr. <laughs> tell us, what is your work? Um, so I'm a producer of poetry, spoken word, live literature projects. Mm. Um, so that ranges from, I guess, kind of like spoken word shows, spoken word nights, um, to working on stuff that ultimately ends up in publication, mm. um, worked on podcast projects. Um, yeah, I find producer one of those terms that kind of means everything and nothing at the same time, because it's it can range from kind of tour booking to kind of a real creative producer, kind of sounding board role. Um, depending on who's asking, I sometimes admit the word poetry, so you don't have to have a long conversation about poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Normally if I'm talking to like elderly relatives. Right. Um, uh, but then, yeah, and then I also work on kind of the more education end of that as well. Um, that's where my background is really working on poetry education projects, and it's only more recently that I've been working on the kind of shows and like literature performances and stuff like that. Um, yeah. There's a really interesting point that you raised there, particularly so much of this conversation is about poetry. It's not strictly limited to poetry, but you know, a large part of this is about poetry, right? Um, in that notion of people who are perhaps not within the sector asking you what it is that you do, <laughs> And that awkward conversation that some of us have to have around, well, yeah, I, I do poetry. <laughs> I'm a poet or a poetry producer. And, and what does that actually mean as like a form of work? I think that's, so if, I don't think, yeah, the idea of a poetry producer mm. is something I don't, there aren't that many of us. Uh, it's not something I think anyone kind of set out to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I've in fact had conversations with other poetry producers about how one falls into this as a career. Um, and, it, and it's kind of a strange thing because you just think if you produce poetry, you're a poet, right? So, mm. whereas if you, so I tend to be like, oh, I work on spoken word theatre shows. And there's an idea of a theatre producer and what a theatre producer does. Um, and I find that kind of, to, to someone that doesn't know the sector, say, that's a more obvious parallel to actually what my day-to-day -day looks like. Whereas if I say I'm a poetry producer, we have like a 10-minute conversation <laughs> that I've had more times than I would like. For sure, for sure. Um, there is, I'm, I want to kind of push a thought there in terms of, I think so many of us would agree with the notion of we kind of fell into the roles that we currently inhabit, right? 
Um, there wasn't necessarily this grand 10-year arc or plan that we put in place when we were starting out and thinking, okay, yes, this is where I'm going to... No, it was like, hey, I like writing poems. I like being in this space. I like making stuff. Let's see what happens, right? Um, I was very much the same in that regard um, as a poet who's now poet, educator, artist, director, so on and so forth. Um, the work that I'm doing now wasn't the plan when I first sat down, started writing poems, sharing those poems out with people and so on and so forth, right? But there's this really interesting thing in terms of how things are changing over time and how we are now starting to, well, we're kind of in an, in an age where particularly the creative industries are becoming more and more popular, right? And we're in an age where people are starting to look towards, okay, how do I make a living from this? How do I actually do this thing that you guys do, right? And that notion of kind of falling into being a poetry producer, doesn't that mean that there is a necessity? The way that you've kind of come into doing that work, doesn't that mean, doesn't that, doesn't that, mean that there's a call for it? And is that call kind of expanding and growing over time? Or the small group of people who are currently doing it, is, is that pretty much it? Have we kind of hit a limit? <laughs> and there um, shall be no more. Yeah, no, I think there's, only, there's four of us, that's it. That's it, Fine, yeah, cool. All right, you've got the work, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, It's the cartel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the cartel. Um, I think there's an expanding need for it, definitely. And I think I was, as Francesca said, um, picking up on that idea of luck, I think, and that... Um, openness to stuff coming along um, I think I was kind of fortunate that I came into producing at a point at which the sector like the poetry spoken word sector was large enough that there was now a kind of need for producers mm. and it's uh, I guess coming back to your point about us being kind of creative professionals or whatever it was um, the sector I think is becoming more professional uh, there is um a kind of growing number of nights, and there's a you know spoken word nights. There's a growing number of kind of spoken word venue, venues across the country that receive spoken word theatre shows, and therefore everything's kind of scaled up a bit. Um, and the idea of we'll just do a poetry night above a pub that still happens, but also you know it's built from there to being okay. Well, you know, well, there's stuff on the South Park Centre, there's stuff mm. on the Barbican, there's stuff on all these different places, and therefore there is a kind of now space for people like me to do the kind of logistics and the fundraising and the kind of um, admin that comes along with that really so that poets don't have to spend all their time doing that and can actually do what they want to do and, and write and produce material and perform and stuff like that. I'm going to jump in on that as well. I feel like in my situation, not having a producer like yourself, we might need to talk later on. <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to learn all those roles yeah. of promoting or producing or finding venues, of negotiating the fee, of thinking about how I can afford to have this venue for cheaper if I show them I'm going to deliver. So I've had to kind of learn that yeah, off the yeah. cuff rather than now that it is, again, a professional kind of platform. We do have people that facilitate those particular roles rather than all being this bumbled up on one person who now has to think, how can I still be and exist as an artist while wearing so many hats at the same time? Because yeah. that's a struggle as well. You kind of lose yourself in the requirements of the profession when originally you came in it for this mm. and now you're being demanded on so different yeah. things. But I think what I do only exists as a result of all those poets that have done it themselves. Yeah. Like they've pushed, kind of pushed the boundaries out and developed those audiences so that there's now a space for someone like me to kind of help, help those poets continue pushing it. But I think it's only off the back of those poets initially wearing all those hats, doing all those jobs themselves, that's made that possible. 
Sorry, Francesca. Yeah. No, I'm just about to thanks. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. So I think when when I was coming up, similarly, you, there was an expectation, even from the sector, I think, like as emerging artists, we were almost given training to be able to do all those hmm. that stuff. I remember getting um, getting kind of arts council support for infrastructure and not understanding what that was. And I was very grateful to it, but not understanding that actually it was about if my career or my, you know, my poetry was going to see the light of day, I needed to be uh, doing the marketing and the producing and potentially the directing and the kind of like the tour booking. And actually your point is super important because when you get to, I think it's really good that we know how to do all of that stuff because then Tom and me have worked together on the last two projects and are hopefully going to be have an ongoing relationship. He's fantastic, by the way, I totally recommend. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, need your, I need your business card. Yeah, but, but actually, because, because I've had to do it and because multitasking doesn't work mm. and because actually you want to stay in your lane, to, I want to write and perform to mm. the best of my ability. If I have to tour book and I have to produce, which is a creative and also and a logistical art it's like a yeah. proper then i'm not going to be doing it's a role in i itself. can't do yeah. two roles well so actually working when tom and i work together i know what he has to do and i respect his work and we can speak the set because i know a bit about what it takes and we can then talk we can have a collaboration mm. where we stay in our lanes but we're both working towards the same end do, does that make sense yeah. so i think I totally agree with what you say. We, we've had to wear all those hats, but actually now's the time. Mm. You can get, you can really speed up your trajectory if you then start collaborating and working with someone who's going to do that. Up. Yeah, because mm. yeah, exactly. Mm. So, firstly, a vote of jealousy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, apart from the kind of producer relationship that you have, um, the notion of the kind of training that you say you received as you were kind of emerging. I know for myself. Um, a lot of the business side of my creative practice, which seems to be a paradox or yeah, lots yeah, of no, one, no. but yeah, the business side of the creative work that I do, a lot of that I pretty much taught myself. Mm -hmm. But you're the done. Well, you're, you. hey, you're, 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 hey, you're hey. And you, you have made, you're, you know, the, you've made your own path and there's no one doing what you do and you do it so well, Jason. Very kind we should, be, we should be interviewing him. I was going to say, I'm waiting for that day, you know. I'm oh, honest, and the biography, I'm waiting for that. Okay, honestly. Okay, okay. And I think because you wore so many hats, people like myself who've seen that right. now realise that I could emulate that right, and understand right, right. that it it is possible and maybe I can find easier ways of doing it because mm. someone has already followed that path and now right. I can kind of look at you as that model and be like, oh, well, maybe I have to do this way different I can throw myself here. For sure. So, well, I was gonna. Yeah. Sorry, I just want one. Go I, for it. I, I hear you though, because I think that you're an amazing writer and performer, and I think that a lot of the time you haven't been able to explore that and do that because you're also good at the creative producing. Yeah. And I think a lot of your energy, your creative energy, has gone into producing and facilitating projects and, and a bigger kind of sector. Yeah goal and dream than in doing your own work and I think that's absolutely true I think yeah I think that is a truth and I think that any one person only has a certain amount of resource that they can offer out into the world and so you have to prioritize and you have to figure out where that resource is going to go so yeah there are definitely times when my investment has been much more about creating spaces for other people 
mm. and trying to build things um, before kind of sitting down and getting to my own creative work done. Mm. Um, but it, it's it's the juggle. Mm. And this is partly what I was going to then come back to. So there's this book called The E-Myth, and you're going to have to forgive me, I don't remember the author. But um, there's this book called The E-Myth, which is about basically entrepreneurialism, um, that speaks about this notion of scaling and this notion of maybe you start the business, and I think the example is given of, of a bakery. You start the business because maybe you love baking, right? And it's just this kind of little backstreet operation. And you don't need to, maybe you're making cakes for, for your people, and it becomes a thing, and everyone's like, oh, if you want cakes, you want to go to that person. Best cakes ever. And you start making all the cakes and all that kind of business. Mm-hmm. But then you reach this point where you, become, where you kind of trip over from the passion side of things, just making it for the love of whatever it is that you're making, to the, okay, there's a business in this. There is a demand for things to be done on time. There is a demand for things to be done um, in a professional way. There are all these other systems that have to be taken on. And there is a point at which, and this is what you guys were just saying, there's a point at which you are managing the various different roles that need to be upheld in order to maintain any kind of business, right? And then the question becomes, how, when, and why do you scale? So do you continue to work in a way that just allows you to work as an independent, where you're doing your own thing, and how much of that work can you do? And or do you, as you were just saying, start to collaborate and start to look for those opportunities where you can say, actually, I just want to write. So all that other stuff that needs to be done, I need to find someone else to take that on. Yeah. Yeah? Um, I mean, was there a definite point that you reached, Francesca, where you were like, okay, this needs to happen in terms of making this shift? What, how did that work for you? In a way, I think I was lucky because, again, lucky, because unlike you, I'm not good at, I'm not good at it. I'm terrible at marketing. I'm terrible at social media. I'm terrible at like, admin organization. Right. You're too good at it. That's your. Right, that's right, your. Right. That's my problem. problem. Right. Yeah. So I I'm not good at it, and um, and so I I knew Tom was um, just about to go freelance and mm. leave his. So um, so actually, it was for a conversation that I had with a poet called Hannah Jane Walker, yeah. who's absolutely brilliant and really um, uh, really kind of um, quite visionary in many ways and she was thinking we've all got these different hats we all have these different skills we all have to know how to market and produce and write and perform but actually it's it's not effective if we're doing all of them so can we have a kind of collective where you know you direct my because I had just directed a show that she was in um with a a guy called Chris Thorpe and um and then she thought well maybe I can produce and I said oh I'm I want to write a new show she said well I can produce it and then she introduced me to the director that she'd been working with. So it was a kind of the idea of this kind of collective. And then she was, um, and, and so she started off producing this. Mm. And then she was working on a collection and didn't have the time and space to tour book at the time that I needed tour booking. And I knew that Tom was just going freelance. So we rang him really quickly and said, <laughs> Tom, Tom. Because <laughs> I'd worked with him in, in, in education. Right. And um, and it was very fortunate. He was he just came straight onto the project. So yeah, I hope that answers. No, no, for sure, for sure. So there there are a couple of different models that we're talking about. For those of you listening, 
audience members who are thinking about how do I extract the actual pathways here. So there are a couple of different models that we're talking about. We're talking about the in individual independent artist who has to do everything. We're talking about the, okay, I'm going to engage or employ someone to start taking on aspects of my work. So I've had various different assistants over the years and I've had um, you know, relationships with larger institutions who, where I've served maybe as an, uh, a freelance or independent artistic director um, in partnership with an organization that, that serves as the uh, producers for whatever project it is that we're working on. But you're also talking about an alternative model which is kind of like an artist cooperative in a sense, right? This whole notion of, well, let's work as a collective. We each bring different things to the table mm. and in sharing our skills in this way, we can support each other mm, yeah. in a much more integrated sense. Yeah. yeah? Mm. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I kind of wanted to get Rao, talk to me a bit about. Sorry, I keep saying Rao. I keep, cool, I keep cool. offering your. Um, I keep identifying you. Don't throw my surname in this. It's going to be Peak. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to so, find my Facebook. It's crazy. There, there, there are many different stories that I could tell about this young man right here and the, uh, the relationships that we have and how we are almost very closely related by blood in yeah. some sense, yeah? But we won't go there because it's not that kind of party. Cool. What I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's for the after party. Yeah. What I was going to ask was this notion of um, rejection, mm -hmm. this notion of gatekeepers, mm -hmm. um, gatekeepers in the creative industries, uh, necessary or unnecessary? Discuss. So initially when you said that, I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, because I've had to learn the positive side of struggle. Mm. Whereas I feel like, oh man, I've been doing this for seven years now. Imagine if I didn't have all these restrictions and people who didn't want to mess with me in the beginning, I could have done so much more good. But that feeling or, which kind of really created a phobia towards working with other people. Because I felt like no one wanted to work with me or even facilitate me to be there. It kind of made me feel like I need to wear every hat because you're not allowing me to be in a circle, understand the kind of the steps it takes to be at that particular level. Um, so I initially did not like gatekeeping. At all. Um, someone called me a gatekeeper the other day. I was like, no, I I'm the I'm the one who just makes this door as wide as possible, right? But through architecture, I'm gonna bring it back. I've learned through talking to various architects, they say that limits are a great thing. They show you just how creative you can be based on the restrictions they provide. So for you, you were talking about the social media side, the admin isn't your forte, mm -hmm. but it's forced you to be creative in a different area because of that limit, because of that rule. Because of the gatekeepers, it made me say, oh, cool, you're not going to let me in, yeah? Watch. <laughs> and I started just adding all these kind of, like, values to myself that wasn't given to me in the right. beginning. So I used that wall as a, mm -hmm. as a leverage tool to build myself up so that that wall wouldn't be there for me anymore. For sure. So, yeah, initially I hated it. Yeah. But I've become to see the positive side of those gatekeepers. Okay. Yeah. Tom, thoughts on gatekeepers from your perspective as a creative producer? Um... I think picking up on Francesca's point earlier, actually, about spoken words as opposed to other, like, page poetry, say, for example. Um, I was doing some work on a short story project recently and was in the part of a kind of whole day discussion about, like, getting an agent, how to find a publisher. And what I loved about um, working in spoken word was it's just, oh, right, you want to you wanna set up a night? Go and, go and set up a night. Mm -hmm. You want to you wanna do a show? Go and, like, get a show together. I, I, I think there might still be gatekeepers in it, but there are fewer, and you don't have to go through this kind of very set pathway of, um, like, find an agent, get published, you know, get a publisher. 
Um, and I think, personally, like as a producer, I, I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing when I started as a producer. You know, I don't know if anyone ever feels like they really know what they're doing when they start out in a, in a job, but um, I worked with Francesca, I worked with a few other poets, and it, it was a case of like, well, let's just go and work it out and, and use the skills that I've done producing stuff as a, in sort of education context and, and go from there. And was able to do it, and I've managed to find a sort of career. Um, so I feel like there wasn't gatekeepers saying, what have you produced before? Like, where are your credentials? What on earth are you talking about? Uh, so I've, and have kind of learned on the job as I go along. So I kind of feel, in many ways, spoken word is, is pretty gatekeeper light. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair for you to say that from a producer angle. Yeah. Because I feel like, and again, it, it definitely depends on the context of time or when you started as well. Mm. Um, for me, I started late 2012, early okay. 2011. And um, yeah, like they were like Farago and Nice, there were um, a place, I can't remember, it was in the back, but I can't remember the name of it anymore, right? And there were like these main little like circuits that you knew you had to kind of be on to be seen. And I only knew there were like three events at that time. There was like 10 or 12 or more than that, but you were only aware of these ones because these are the ones that were promoted as the main places to go. I'm assuming there are probably a bunch of poetry places that could have highlighted and championed so many more poets. But because there were like these main places, like in New York, there's New Yorkans. If you're not at New Yorkans or you're not at the Bowery, you're not doing anything in a New York poetry scene. Bar 13. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there's like this, I wouldn't call it a stigma. There's definitely like a stereotype quality, depending on what stages you can be on and what stage you're at. We've all kind of seen like if you're a rapper and someone else co-signs you, oh, now you're amazing. Drake just said you are this. Right, right, it right. kind of builds up your, your status. And mm -hmm. I saw that in the beginning. If you couldn't associate yourself with the people in the scene, initially, there were a lot of people who weren't going to book you. There were a lot of people who didn't really know what you were trying to do, even if it was an open mic. Mm. So I definitely feel like it's, it's how you come in, where you come in, at what time you enter. Yeah, I mean, I, speaking, like, working on Outspoken, which is like a fairly sizable spoken word night, and I feel like, I guess we could possibly be seen as the gatekeepers in some sense, you know, because we're making selections as to who we program for a given night but I feel we find who we're going to program off of who's doing well on the scene that is has sort of open mics and and there's a kind of if you do there's a almost like an apprenticeship almost you do some open mics you get a bit of a reputation you might get booked as a feature act you do a few feature acts you get a bit of renown you might get booked for like a a night at I don't know Tong Fu or something like that and that's how you you kind of work your way up. And I think, whilst there is, I'm sure there are negatives to that, but also I think there is a kind of learning your craft as you go along. Um, and that the gatekeepers, I don't think they necessarily, well, I don't think we view ourselves necessarily as like gatekeepers and we'll pick people that we know are doing well. And that, but I think there's a kind of, you've got to work your way up there. Just hold All right, I'm so sorry, I'm we're so about sorry. To, we're about to change the space. So, we're listen, gonna break out some uh, boxing gloves. I still want your uh, business card after so I say this, right? <laughs> So, there was a film, I watched the film and I can't remember what they said in it specifically. I'm, so, I'm just talking right now, right? You got me. A, a villain thinks they're a hero. They don't think they're doing bad work. They think they're doing good work for the good of the people, right? Now, unless you see the impacts from the opposite side of the fence, you'll always see yourself as doing the good work. I'm not saying you're doing bad work, right? <laughs> but imagine there are people who struggle being on an open mic scene. They're not going to make it to your stage. 
Because, like you said, there's like a, a way, a pathway up towards reaching that point. And if they can't, let's say, break those barriers or create a name on those platforms, they're not going to be on your stage. Essentially, that's what you said. All right, I'm going to jump in. So this, this is why I... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to invite Francesca. If Francesca has any thoughts within this um, kind of thread of thought to add... Um, Ooh, can I, I say, say one more thing? Can I say no, one you thing? cannot. Get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to invite Francesca in just now. Um, and then uh, we're approaching a time when we're going to kind of open out to the audience because you all have been sat, and, sat here beautifully and absolutely beautifully listening hard to, um, to everything that's been said. But it'd be great to see if there's anything that you would like to ask of the people that we have here, bearing in mind some of the things that we've covered. Um, so, Francesca. Um, yeah, yeah. In terms of this conversation around gatekeepers and the necessity of, or perhaps yeah. the lack of necessity for, um, yeah. what are your thoughts? Um, so I think that, I mean, I started a long, long time ago. Let's not go I started a long, long time ago. Yeah. And when I started, I remember kind of the first time I read, it was, it's not a night that's even going anymore. It's at the Riverside in Hammersmith. And uh, I remember getting up, I went on my own and I didn't tell anyone and I got up and I was, it was winter, but I thought that people could see my heart beating through my jumper and I, I was holding my paper and I was so embarrassed because my paper was completely, you know, like it felt like a cartoon character. My paper was shaking and the amount of adrenaline I had afterwards was like so huge. It was became addictive and I think... I don't know, I came, I came to spoken word from a really particular place. I'd wanted to be a poet, a page poet. I, uh, I kind of came into open mic as a kind of act of desperation. That my kind of, I had no idea that I was going to make a career out of it. My bar was so, I just needed to be heard. It was, I, it, it was like a, I, I felt like I had nowhere further to fall in terms of like ego, you know. I was at a quite, a, I didn't, believe in myself but I had to communicate that and um, and so I kept going to open mics without thinking about I want to get a spot or I, I just kept going to open mics because I just wanted to share my stuff and, and in a way not be in the places that I felt I, I was already at but I wasn't being heard at so I think I naturally just from doing open mics then got given I kind of it was kind of lucky for me because I didn't have an ambition mm-hmm to be a performer and then I became a performer by accident mm-hmm. and I think if if I had thought I'm going to be a performer and then I'd gone up to an open mic uh, I, I wouldn't have been any good because I think if you're if you do spoken word there's always an element of improvisation to it and I think the only way to get good at spoken word for me is stage time and when you when I started I wasn't you know, I wasn't very good at improvisation. I wasn't very good at being live. I wasn't good at listening to an audience. Right, right. And I think it took me a long time. And that kind of apprenticeship of small spots and open mics, um, when I started, it was a long time ago. No, I agree. So, I agree. So, no, there was... The other thing is, I think, that actually we need a standard of spoken word. Because, that, you know, I don't know, but you know, you were talking, listen, wait, wait, wait. You talk about, like, running here, making it on time, and it felt like ten minutes, but mm. it's like, maybe it was three minutes. I, I'm, when I listen to spoken word, and I don't think someone's polished it or put the work in, 
I, I'm going to say this, and you're all going to hate me. It is excruciating for me. I'm like, you are taking my time, and I'm so bored, and I'm so angry, you know. And and actually, if it was an open mic, I would totally forgive you. I would applaud. I would love what you're doing. But if you go up there and you are a featured spot and you have not listened to what your work is like for an audience, right. I am angry. So I want people to. Get to a spot so and, we're talking and, about some kind of growth there, some kind of progression, kind of emerging from that sense of being so, an open mic, open mic artist. So I think gatekeepers who stop people because they don't recognise them, they don't do the kind of stuff that they don't like, they right. don't like the kind of where they're coming from. I think that's terrible gatekeeping. If it's gatekeeping, like you have to, you're going to be, you're going to have to prove that you want this and mm. you want it enough that you're going to work for it. I think that's mm. good. Does that make sense? Like any yeah. gatekeeping which is going to stop you just because I don't think that yes. I don't recognise you as the type of artist I think an artist should be. That's 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 bullshit. Can I jump yeah. in now? Because all I right, so we've got, I wanna, we've got two corners, two corners coming in. So let me because I just, please, please, please. Yeah. All right, so hundred percent agree with you. Um, and I kind of wanted to come back to the point in reference to that. I feel like I didn't get the chance to say how you described it like a quality surveyor, right? through the process of actually like galvanizing your craft through being on stage, you become better because you are listening to the audience, you're listening to yourself. I initially started just gassing myself up in, in a room, say, oh, I'm the, yeah, like just by myself. <laughs> I had no audience, right? So I can understand how, and again, like I was a very different person, like my social circle wasn't what it is now. So I had to gas myself up to the point where I then allowed an audience to critique me then allow myself to grow to critique myself. So I feel like gatekeepers are good if they're quality surveyors and they still have that communication with the people coming up mm -hmm. rather than that dislocation, yeah. which is what I experienced right. and why I have such a negative relationship to it. Tom, we're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice done. Tom, last word. I mean, I think, I, did, I, I think there's a, like a logistical element to it as well, which is like someone's got to be gigging for us so for our spoken say, there's like five or six of us that put it together. Someone's got to be gigging somewhere for us to see and for us to put them on. Mm -hmm. uh, or someone's got to have written something that's published somewhere or, you know, in a magazine or it's however it comes about mm -hmm. for us to see it, for us to put it on. Because otherwise we don't know who that person is. Mm -hmm. And I think um, for us, it's about review. It's like curation and it's you know, we'll try and have a lineup that's balanced in terms of, you know, you might have someone that's more pagey, you might have someone that's more performancey, you might kind of try and balance those different elements out. Um, and, but I think the thing about spoken word is, like, the, the kind of apprenticeship, as it were, that, uh, that I kind of talked about of, like, open mics, speech spots, that, that's one route into it. Mm. But what I think is good about spoken word is that actually you could go and set up your own night above a pub somewhere, or you can go and do, like... There are different routes into it. It can be that you do a pro, you know, you come out of doing work with young people and loads of poets of poets and spoken word artists. Kind of that's where they they kind of enter the scene. From that's where I came from in, in producing. There are people that have come from doing like theatre, one person theatre shows, um, and scratching smaller versions and then putting together bigger shows. So I think there are. Whilst I talked about that kind of open mic feature spot thing, is that's a kind of very straightforward stepping stone and pathway. Mm. There are other routes into that sector, which is what I like about it, that there's not, yes, there might be gatekeepers in that area that you can't get past, mm. um, but actually you can just find another route in, and there sure. are different routes in. So we're talking about gatekeepers um, from the perspective of them being curators. 
and the notion of that being a role that needs to be invested in. So there needs to be some kind of duty of care in that notion of gatekeeping, not just personal bias mm. or taste-based mm. bias. Right. Yeah, yeah. Really important difference there. All right. Um, we have arrived at that point where um, it would be lovely. We've kind of been having this conversation here um, on the panel, and I, I get the sense that Lionheart has much more to say. Um, however, I'm going to ask him to hold himself just for a moment. Rain it in. Rain it in. And um, we're, we're now going to open out to the audience. Audience members, do you, are you still with us? Yeah. yeah! Amazing, and I see your hand straight away. Please, bring forth your question. Hi guys, thank you all for coming and taking the time out of your day to talk to us. Um, my question is quite basic, in a sense of, can you describe the difference between poetry and spoken word, please? Hey! Um, so, I will say, just before we started this, someone was speaking about postcodes and whether a certain part of London uh, was actually London. Yeah. Um, Mangoes. <laughs> and uh, the, the poetry spoken word question could be equally as fraught. Um, I'm going to open that up to the panel. Uh, who wishes to offer their personal <laughs> take on this particular issue? This is, a, this is a question that's been asked by so many people in so many different ways and it is still a hotbed question. So, panel, thoughts, please. Um, I'm going to quote Ocean Beyond. Okay. Um, and they said that the stage and the page are the same. Like the air could be seen as a, as a stage. How you use it, how it's used to affect other people, how it could be composed based on your cadence and your, and your dy dynamism, dynamic quality can really affect how someone would read a page poem. So essentially I feel like they're both one and the same, but they have different criteria. So I would compose a poem for the page completely different than how I would compose a poem for the stage. One, I know that I absorb so much more information when it's on paper. I have the time, I have the, the license to have as much time as I want. But when I'm on stage, you, you've got three minutes, maybe four to hear me. So you already kind of approach me from a time limited perspective. I need to get what I can while you're on stage right now. So there's a kind of an immediacy that is required from being on stage and that that captivate, yeah, yeah. Can't the right, to captivate an audience initially or at a point, like there are completely different um, pathways to affect a, an audience, whether it's from page or whether it's on stage. So I feel like, just to compartmentalize it, if you're on stage, I feel like the time limit that you have is gonna impact how you write, how when you're on. <laughs> when you when yeah yeah Ooh, I was getting there you know you see my my energy's getting up. No, right, so for anyone who's listening who doesn't have the visual <laughs> aspect of what just happened, I'm a passionate person. Right? I just gonna put it out there. There was almost the tapping of the table. It was so good, so close. We were just waiting for it. We were waiting for it. Yeah, there was almost the banging of the table, which would have been an interesting audio experience, <laughs> shall we say, for the for the listeners. Yes, yeah. indeed. But please do round your point. So um, yeah, on stage, I feel like the time limit um, creates an immediacy that you need to have a, a strong impact at a particular pivot pivotal time, whereas on a page you have so much time to digest it. So you can actually put more into it, or you can again pace yourself, knowing that someone can come back to it later on, write an annotation and come back to it and receive in a completely different way. It's easier to be dissected on page than it is to be on stage. Okay. And sometimes people gravitate to the page more because you can put so much more quality into it because there's, there's no um, 
Oh, 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 oh. I challenge the word quality just right, from yeah. the perspective of we can have quality regardless of the platforms that we're working on. Um, I would, to a certain extent, agree with the notion of you being able to in, um, to work with meaning in different ways um, when you have the page as a, as a platform to work with, simply because, again, of the immediacy that you were talking about. Ooh, I'm going to shut up because this, <laughs> this is going to be podcast part two. But yeah, right. I definitely feel there's two ways of approaching yeah. and approaching the audience. For sure. Yeah. Anyone else on the panel wish to uh, step into that lively debate? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say we, uh, um, you were at the show, I have a little section in the show about, um, I'm just waiting, at my, my friend who's in the audience here, we were, um, so I completely agree with what, exactly what you say, and I think um, spoken word is, has a kind of um, a need to um, offer a structure which uh, is, is a kind of collaboration for the audience so that they can, they can take part at that moment, in that same time. So a lot, it's kind of, so story, for example, because everyone knows how story works, so story works really well in spoken word, or um, kind of certain structures like rap, you know, rhythmic, rhyming, uh, works really well because people know, and they can build up expectations, right. and they know where it's going. So, because listening is really hard, and unless you are listening with some agency, if you're just listening and you don't know what's going to happen next and you have no idea, that's, that gets really tiring. So I think whatever spoken word does, it needs to have a framework where the listener can start building up a world in which the, the words are taking... Does that make sense? Completely. And the thing that... So one of the things, again, I will celebrate in what Lionheart led with was this notion of how there are parallels between whatever it is that we do in spoken word, i.e. the performance of a, a, a poem, um, and whatever it is that we do when we work with poetry on the page. So that notion of whether it's rhyme or structure or story structure, narrative, any of that kind of thing that you, you were referencing in terms of spoken word there, as someone who exists also between the worlds of performance poetry and poetry on the page, I'm like, oh yeah, that also sounds to me like form. Mm. Yeah, the way the form works in poems on pages, yeah. right? So we build up expectations of what, when it sits on a page, if we have some kind of formal structure, whether we're talking about Vinanels or Sistinas or Sonnets or whatever, mm. um, wow, here's a structure. I know how that structure works. Okay, great, now I have my expectation. Mm. I know what this poem is supposed to do, mm. yeah? Mm. There are so many parallels between the two, which doesn't help. In terms of answering your questions succinctly and neatly. But yeah, one of the beautiful things about this is that it's all poetry. Yeah. Um, Tom, any final words? Or have they kind of pretty much covered everything that you would wish to add on this notion? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think we've been really fortunate in the, that there, is, there are incredible page poets out there and incredible spoken word artists. And actually that there is this cross-pollination. Yeah. And that actually compared to, you know, how many years ago... Page poets read a lot better, and I'm sure that's a result of the influence of kind of spoken word. And I think yeah. there's spoken word artists potentially are thinking more about the writing. And I think the the one developing benefits the other massively because of that kind of interchange of how they play play against each other. For sure, completely agreed. All right, do we have another question in the audience? Ask, now we've started talking about the page, about the relationship with publishing and performance. So obviously I appreciate it's a very individual journey. So um, could you say anything about where perhaps in your journey publishing came in, if at all, and what relationship it might have to your performance? 
Right, so where publishing came in in terms of your career. So Tom, we're going to be very keen to hear about your next three collections. Um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, he does actually write. I have no doubt about this. I have no <laughs> doubt. Right. So yeah, how, how, how publishing has featured in terms of your career, at what point you came to it, and um, what the relationship between the publishing of your work and the performance of your work actually might be or is. Any takers? I'm going to be that guy, you know. I really am going to be that guy. I am extremely competitive. So before I sound like a Kanye West poet, right? There was a period. There was a period in my career where I felt like my stage work wasn't valued. Mm. Um, that the quality of time that I put into it wasn't valued. That it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be permitted to be mirrored to the poets that I would see execute on page so greatly. Mm. Whether that's something that I felt over myself, it was a, a culture at the time. Mm. I innately felt this throughout a particular period of my career. So the competitive person said to me, oh, you think I'm not good on page? <laughs> Watch. Mm. And I, I committed myself to the different style, standards, criteria, the different lessons that page could teach me that would then later influence my performance work. My, my relationship with publishers came because I honestly believe, thanks for having great mentors in my life, they allowed me to galvanize the, the integrity of quality that was required in both senses. And hey, that was like mic drop moment. Perfect timing, perfect timing, right? And, and I feel like it was because I was so competitive that I didn't just want to be known as, oh, you're a spoken word artist. You're not a poet. Oh, you can perform, but you can't write. There was definitely those conversations having. And so there was a sense of validation that you were seeking. There was this kind yeah. of, so you existed as a spoken word artist, performance poet, and felt the need to be published, to be recognized more fully or more broadly? Yep. Yeah? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and Francesca? I'm so not published. And um, every now and then I think, if I wait out long enough, maybe people are going to be desperate. And, then I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and partly that's just because I've been lucky enough to keep it. I'm lucky. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I I always wanted to be, and um, I I kind of I did. I felt when I started out, I wasn't writing the kind of poems that people wanted to publish, or they thought were the kind of poems to be published. And things have changed so much now, mm. largely through a lot of what you guys have been doing. You know how you've kind of like forged kind of your own voice on the page and looking at these guys here who've published and, and I think there probably would be space but I it's, my craft is so I haven't put the time in so if I started to think about publishing I'd have to start I'd have to give it a lot of time because I'd, I'd be coming in kind of as a beginner like I'm a really experienced spoken word artist but I, I haven't put time in on the page and I think you get good at doing something by doing it so I keep thinking when I'm old and I can no longer totter out onto the stage. Oh, that was quite a lively dancer. Maybe then I'll have time to sit there and kind of like actually learn how to write poetry for the page because it's it's a different thing. Right? I remember like there was this phrase that used to happen throughout the seven years, and it was, "Oh, I, I can tell you don't read poetry right. through you being on stage." Right. And it used to hurt me because I didn't get. I used to read poetry, but just not religiously, like not all the time. And. Um, it was only until I started doing it like every month, every week, I started to realize how much my craft was changing, right. whether or not I wanted to or not. Mm. It just started to seep into my, my brain. Mm. And um, again, man, who, who is the quality controller in terms of what, what good poetry is and what should be published, what should be published? There is, 
I was just going to say two quick thoughts um, before we um, see if uh, Tom has anything to offer on, on this point. Um, one, we're talking about poetry and spoken word. And although there is this kind of um, sometimes tense relationship between page poetry and performed poetry, um, we don't necessarily have to conceive that as in order to be fully recognized, you need to be published. Mm -hmm. Spoken word exists, performance poetry exists as a platform, as, an, uh, as a genre, as an industry in its own right. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be published necessarily in that way. There is another conversation to have around, again, kind of business thinking and um, yeah, practical thinking around what having a body of published work actually mm -hmm. means for you as a creative professional. And even though Francesca will say that she's not published, she does have at least one pamphlet that existed at some point in history. I still mm -hmm. have a copy of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hold it close to my heart and teach mm -hmm. from it at times. Um, so yeah, there is a conversation along those lines, but also um, in terms of that notion of craft and how your poems sit on the page, um, I would just offer that partly that's that's what an editor does with you as well in terms of that support. We have a conversation that we've we've been we've stepping away from for a while. All right, so there's a mic moving towards the question. Tom, just very quickly before that mic goes anywhere, um, did you want to? Is there anything else that you wanted to throw into this conversation? Um, I think that. Picking from that kind of business point, actually, yeah. though, I think, like, um, to speak with my producer, these budgets need to balance hat on. Um, <laughs> you know, like having a, ha having a, um, having like a tangible fit, like a book or, you know, something that, as a spoken word artist, that you can sell essentially at the yeah. end of a gig if people like your work. Like, that's an important revenue stream. And I think um, the fact there are, you know, there are still gatekeepers, but there are presses that publish what would be, I guess, perceived as the more spoken word end of stuff, mm. does actually offer um, opportunities for people to encounter that work that don't see these people, um, these poets perform live, but also it's like a, it's a, it's an important part of someone's living that they can make from publishing. Very much so. That, that is part of the publishing question, that notion of the published work as artifact. Even in this age where we're talking about um, maybe digital publishing, where we're talking about you know things that turn up as PDFs or on Kindles or anything like that, this notion of the book as a tangible thing that exists as a marker of an experience beyond the performance is still powerful and still holds weight, right? Um, yeah, uh, you know, we can talk about monies in poetry and how much money you make, but that notion of being able to pass something on that exists beyond you, right? That can travel where you perhaps don't mm. or can travel ahead of you in some ways. That is also really powerful in terms of that thinking around publishing, whether you consider yourself to be a page poet or not, right? Um, was there another question? There was a mic moving in the direction of one. Yeah, thanks. Um, I want to bring it back to gatekeepers. <laughs> 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 So uh, at first, Lionheart was saying it was about clicks um, before, but now it's turned into, say, like a filter that yes. sustains like the integrity of the industry and of the art. Um, I wanted to, my question was, what happens when hubris kicks in, when when pride kicks in, um, and you know, just to make things a little bit easier, you make certain systems, certain bureaucracies, so that that filter can run more efficiently, and then some years down the line, there's gonna, is there going to be need for specialist lawyers in the creative poetry industry 
or, or things like that. What, what happens um, yeah, when you might need some like, small government regulation? Uh, is there a way to keep the integrity of the industry or is the future uh, product diversification and market shares just like the rest of the industry? Fantastic question. Uh, that was that was almost like a yeah, MA level question there. <laughs> Discuss. Yes. Um, so that whole notion of futures, um, the notion of gatekeeping, and where, how that evolves in the poetry sector or the spoken word sector as it currently exists. What's the future of that kind of notion of gatekeeping? Anyone? Tom, let's start with you if you have a thought. Um, I think part of what I enjoy about working in poetry and spoken word is that actually it's being quite a small sector, there are there aren't a large number of barriers in terms of working with different poets and getting in touch with different poets. And, you know, um, I think in, even in terms of poets having agents, I guess, that's particularly spoken word artists having agents mm. is a relatively new thing. Um, when you say relatively new? Um, in terms of... There have always been poets and artists that have like kind of agents yeah, yeah, who yeah. are the kind of um, I don't want to use the word gatekeeper because we've used it so much today, <laughs> but they're the you know um, you have to go through the agent to speak to that person, right? right. Um, <laughs> and uh, there you know the, there might be a gate and they might be keeping it. Uh, <laughs> let's not call them a gatekeeper, um, but uh, <laughs> because and but I think. Poetry as a sector at the moment is very self, it's very supportive. Mm. And I think, um, for example, on a problem with outspoken press the other day, I phoned up another small press and said, hey, when you're calculating this stuff, how do you do it in there? And just got an answer because there wasn't like a, you're a competitor, we can't help you. Right. It's very supportive. And I think as it grows and becomes more professionalized, I wonder mm. if that, that might get lost. Um, mm. And the fact that there are now spoken word artists who are making a, a kind of considerable income, I guess. Like, they're doing all right for themselves. Um, whereas I think because poetry's been small and because previously no one's going to get filthy rich off of poetry, you mm. know, therefore it does encourage everyone to be supportive because no one's out there, like, defending their patch of turf because their patch of turf is, is not going to make a million. So it's like, we might as well all help each other. And if the sector grows, we'll all do all right, you know. Well, I see please, your face. Bro, please, I see your bro. Face. So I have, I feel like I'm really exerting a lot of my personal gripes today. So apologies <laughs> if this comes across that way. I'm extremely passionate at kind of removing that narrative from poetry. So I'm very keen on showing the power of application in terms of where poetry can see itself, as well as how much um, money it can actually receive through the value that it's placed itself. So saying that... So when you say that narrative, clarify what you mean by that Saying that you can't make a lot of money in poetry. Right. That hurts me. And I feel like hearing it, a lot of people just be like, same reason my parents don't think like you have a career in poetry until I've had to show them that through persistence and da-da-da-da-da, you can make a substantial amount of money. I'm still broke. You can make a substantial <laughs> amount of money just putting out in case anyone knows my address and my government name. You know what I'm saying, right? Um, but it, it really hurts me because it almost kind of stunts the growth that someone can really throw themselves at. So for me, for instance, hearing that, it made me want to say, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. But I know that a lot of people do so are really content in, go on, I heard the Excel coming, go on. <laughs> I think my point is, so I'm not saying that we're all going to sit here impoverished in some sort of garret somewhere, like mm. your stereotypical idea of this poet. Mm. Um, I think 
what I mean is, you know, the people I know that don't work in poetry, that work in kind of business or in finance or whatever, there's very much that like, if we do really well here, we can make like a, a mountain of cash and therefore I'm going to fight tooth and nail that this is my mountain of cash and this is not your mountain of cash. Right. I think in poetry, you know, we can all make a living. We're all sat here today. You know, we're all working full time in this sector. Um, but because it's not, there's not that kind of, I'm going to fight tooth and nail to, to keep you off my turf. Mm-hmm. It's very much a, like, there's not, there's not that greed driving it because I think if you were out to make, you know, a shed load of money, you wouldn't be working in poetry. Like, there's no two ways about it. You can make a living, yeah. but you're not. I think there's a, there's a really essential, this is super interesting. So I wonder whether it's, so the, the model of making money at, at the moment, I guess our system is capitalism, right? And capitalism follows a certain model. Um, and it goes back to what you said really early on, which is, um, and I have no answers, I'm just talking right now. But like, when you, you said, you know, someone makes cakes and they make it for the love of cakes and they kind of like giving their cakes to people and people come in and they go, oh, I love that vanilla. What have you got any, whatever it is. With capitalism, when you get bigger, you have, firstly, you have to get bigger. Mm. Otherwise, mm. you fold yeah. or someone swallows you up yeah. and, you be- and they buy you or they break you up or whatever. With capitalism, you have to get bigger. That's one thing. And then, you know, you can't, as an individual, you can't get bigger. You know, you're an individual. So if, so essentially, if you get bigger, then you have to kind of compartmentalize what you're doing. And then you also have to somehow, to monetize, you have to have an economy of scale and you have to offer stuff that people can consume. And the way that you market that is you're offering people something in which they your brand, you are your brand, and then they buy what you're you're giving them to take on their identity mm. as well. And then what unit? And then you're selling units and whatever it is. And I think there's something kind of anti-capitalist about spoken word and poetry. There's some inherently anti-capitalist things. I think one of them is that we're the reason that I think both spoken word and poetry are about trying to articulate. Um, an, an authenticity or a feeling of truth, which is not to deny any other truth, but to somehow clarify that we all experience the world right. as in our own heads and in different ways, and somehow to get to the truth, you almost have to deconstruct meaning sometimes. And I think that in itself is so anti-capitalist. Very much so. And it's also... It's, you know, whatever brand I have as a spoken word artist, if I'm doing my job, you're not going to go, oh, I'm going to have that brand. Do you know what I mean? You're going to think, oh, I could do that. I'm going to go and maybe I'm going to tell my story. So I think that there's something, there's something very, yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's something kind of inherently anti-capitalist. I'm not saying you can't make money out of it, but I just think that it's quite resistant to capitalist models of making money. I'm going to jump in on the end of that. I'm just going to say... Um I see that there's a question. I think we'll make that the last question because we are approaching time. Oh, two questions? I'm being given the, the, the notion that there are last two questions. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, what I will say, um, in an interesting way, I'm not sure if we actually answered the question that you were putting yeah. forward. And one of the interesting things is that I do agree with this notion of, of poetry and this kind of artistic effort being inherently anti-capitalist, but I think that as we develop more of a sense of poetry and spoken word particularly, um, being an industry 
and being a pathway that we can professionalize mm-hmm. and starting to think of, well, yeah, how do I earn a living from doing this and how do I build everything on top of this art form? Then we more and more come to that question, which is what is the future of that? And do we not end up kind of moving into that capitalistic um, sense of what it means to be a poet within this, within this sector? Didn't answer the question. We just kind of put weight behind it, Good really. Good question, though. Fantastic question. We'll need 5,000 word essays each in terms of answering that. Well, yeah, end of the day, you can mark them for us. Right, two final questions before we wrap up today. Um, I feel like mine isn't going to be straightforward either. It's kind of just bouncing off the points that you've been making because I feel like a lot of, as always, a lot of themes are intersecting with each other and I'm really happy that you brought up capitalism because I think it goes back to earlier topics that you were discussing in regards to gatekeeping, in regards to being an independent artist and also complying with, um, I don't know, standards of market or keeping up with some kind of business framework. And I think the thing that always kind of goes in my mind is like, how do you stay true to your art as an individual without compromising your art form and still comply with that kind of momentum in the world? Because you want to create an impression in the scene, right? But you don't want to come out too soon or come out too, um, I don't know, too eager to show yourself without necessarily being true to what you can create or the potential that you have. And I think it's a problem amongst, not problem, but it's something that anyone who's kind of new to any kind of industry will face. It's just kind of trying to jump at the opportunities that you have available to you without necessarily jumping too soon. So how do you stay true to your art without necessarily falling into the trap of complying to capitalism, as you mentioned? Fantastic question. How do you stay true to that art when you are trying to meet the demands of that industry that you're working within and trying to grow within that industry? Um, I'll take short answers from anyone who is, who has a thought burning that they might wish to offer up. <laughs> I've got a thought burning to in response to it. Sorry, I've got to. No, yeah. I'm just going to say one thing, which is uh, your point. Your point about having to try to make money, I think, is a, also really valid from the point of view of that's a gatekeeping thing. Not to be able to make money and then have like some kind of income stream. It, so gatekeeping, a gatekeeping thing is, is, is the need to make money. We all need to eat. We all need to, uh, and this kind of intersects with your question. We all need to eat. We all need to kind of live. If you can't make a living from poetry, then, and you don't have some kind of fallback or some parent who's going to give you money or some other job that's going to, then you can't be a poet. And that is the big, one of the big gatekeepers. So from your point of view of like having to make money, I totally see that. And I respect that. that I'm going to try and do this as succinctly as possible. Yes, please. You can be a poet who doesn't make money. If that's the decision you want to do, you can be a poet for the rest of your life. Just don't charge anyone for anything. Don't try and think how it can exist in the world. You can have that narrative. Um, in terms of you having um, gatekeepers as the way to stop you from making money, gatekeeping it stopped me from making money as a poet. I'm sorry to be so blunt no, and brief, because no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to respect the time of everyone as well, yeah, and yeah. we can definitely continue this on another podcast yeah. episode. Um, towards your question, I've lived that. And in seven years, it took me four to understand that I'd, I wasn't who I was supposed to be in poetry. I was the entertainer, and I was happy in it because everyone clapped. So I thought my poems were great because they gave me claps. So I started using that as a validating tool. It was only when I met specific people like Jacob and other mentors in my life, they placed myself in front of myself and started to politely interrogate me. Whereas I used to hate myself, so I used to do anything to please other people to make me please myself, right? So it was only when I had people like Jacob and other people you can trust to put yourself in front of yourself and politely interrogate and dissect who you think you are and who you think you should be. Through that process, it's not an instant one, 
It happens with poetry. You'll progressively become who you're destined to. I believe that. And I've, I'm, 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 a, I'm a role model for that narrative. Fantastic. Just before that, um, I would also add to that by saying um, it's a really interesting point that you put forward within that question, that notion of wanting to make a mark within the scene, um, whatever that scene actually is. And I guess part of the answer to that, alongside what's been said, is um, also you holding yourself accountable to why it is you actually want to make that mark and what that mark is actually all about. Yeah. Um, and that, if you, if you are constantly asking yourself those questions, then that gives you a framework or some kind of foundation for approaching that notion of what does integrity mean mm. as I approach this space, as I start thinking about scaling or growing. Yeah? Yeah. I, I also think you're allowed to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. You can, you can change and you can just, yeah. For sure. Uh, how do you combat writer's block and what inspires you to write? Fantastic. Jacob should definitely answer yeah. this one. Yep, Jacob. Mm -hmm. Why should I answer mm -hmm. this one? Um, Stephen <coughs> right. um, There are two answers to conquering writer's block in terms of the advice that I often offer. Um, one is you either need to write more, write past the block, or you need to um, take a step away, give yourself a little, break and, a little bit of a break and go elsewhere. When I say write more, the notion of writing more is kind of getting away from that sense of judgment and self-judgment. At least half of the time, if not more, writer's block is actually that, that sense of, actually, I could write stuff, but I don't think that writing's going to be any good, so I'm not going to write it down, so I can't write anything, so, ah, right? And sometimes in order to get over that writer's block, it's giving yourself the permission to write poorly or write badly or write the thing that you don't think is going to be as great as what you think it should be, but giving yourself permission to do that so you have something to start from, and then you can build from there, right? There is the other side of that coin, which is the reality that once you've been banging your head against that brick wall for long enough, maybe you actually just need to step away. Mm. There's a whole other conversation about the relationship between the front brain and the back brain, right? And how, you know, your front brain is saying, I really need to sit down and write this poem. Um, but you exhaust your, your resources. The front brain is finite and the back brain is infinite and sometimes you need to step away and allow that back brain when I'm essentially talking about the subconscious you need to allow that back brain to actually go to work on the thing that you are trying to write and leave it leave it to hold that for a little bit and when you come back to that there is more chance of you being able to find something that you can then again continue to work through yeah anyone else want to jump in or we pretty much yeah, yeah? I got um so uh, what kind of what, do, you, do you write spoken word or poetry? Yeah, I write lots. Oh, okay. Okay. So two things that might help in order. Firstly, what's the thing that you're most scared of writing or you think is going to be the most embarrassing or the thing that you're, you know, that you're kind of disgusted by that you could write? And then when you write that, just let it be the pathetic piece of shit it was always meant to be. That's it. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> right. We are pretty much... At time, um, I hope you will agree. Uh, people in the audience with us, people in the audience, are you still here? Yeah. So I hope you will agree. People in the audience here, and the people who are listening at some point in the future, um, this has been a fantastic conversation. There is so much more that could be said. So many branching conversation points, so many threads to pick up on, um, so many grapes to uh, devour <laughs> now from the table. Um, but we are at time. So I want to thank, oh.
Right, okay, cool. So we'll work on down the line. Uh, I was about to say we are at time, so we're going to have to say goodbye to our panelists as we say goodbye. And we're going to work down the line. Tom McAndrew, if we want to know more about your work or find out more about you, where would we go? Uh, on our website, tommcandrew.com, or I'm at Tom McAndrew very sporadically. Thank you. Lionheart! Um, you could find me at Lionheartfilt. And Francesca. Oh, God. All the socials. Oh. All the socials on the website. I'm, I'm unfindable. And your Instagram stories. Oh. Um, so Tom's having me um, put a website together. Uh, Francesca Beard, that's my name. Uh, yeah. Google Francesca Beard, you will find all the things. Including yes. a website that doesn't work. Including a website that doesn't work. <laughs> but Tom's going to fix it. Doesn't currently work. It did work at one point. Yes. Yeah. And it will be working yes. again at yeah. some point in the near future. There you go. Um, my name has been Jacob Sam the Rose. I've been the host for this conversation. You can find me um, website jacobsamlarose.com on Twitter at jsamlarose. Um, and yeah, you've been a fantastic audience. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your afternoon. Take care. Thank you for joining us on our Maiden episode. If you like what you heard, please do two things. First, subscribe to our channel, then head over to the LipFest website at lipfestival.com. That's L-I-P-Festival.com. Subscribe to our mailing list and keep up to date with details for Living in Poetry Festival 2019. Catch you next week.